So it's late night talk radio again with Tony Walker. And here we are, and the night has once again enveloped the earth. And she's keeping us in her gentle grasp until she hands us back to the daylight in hours from now. But for now, the night is all around us, and it's a quiet night. All I can hear is the sound of the water lapping against the boat and odd sound of the owls calling from the oaks and ashes and elms just that stand off the canal itself. Since we last spoke, September has turned into October, and I always think it's really funny how the seasons change so quickly. So, about a month ago, it was quite warm, and if you remember, this summer was quite a hot one and we were complaining of the heat and the lack of rain. And now autumn has come. The leaves are turning red and gold and brown. And the rain has come with it, not that it's raining just yet. I think it's promised for later. And it's cold. Uh, and I think that's amazing. And all because the earth turns around. And it keeps on turning. But for now... It's got its face away from Old Father Sun. And, and the moon would be out, except it's behind the clouds. But I see from the clever app I've got that it's 68.6% uh, waxing gibbous. Now you may choose to call it gibbous, but uh, I think you're wrong, with all due respect. Now I've been away this last week. We had a lovely trip away. This is, I've been quite mobile this uh, summer from about March, spring right through to the autumn, but we don't have many plans to go anywhere. Now we're settling in for the dark time of the year. Looking forward to Halloween, of course. This was always one of my favourite kind of times of year, this autumn season. And when I was a kid, we used to look forward to, oh, there's the rain. I knew it was coming anyway, but we used to look forward to the Conkers, the horse chestnuts dropping, and I just collected a whole load of those in the back of the car, uh, and I've been throwing them by the, by the side of the river in the hope that one day they will grow. Uh, and uh, the other things I got this week were lots and lots of apples, so I'll tell you about our journeys. We went down to Glastonbury in Somerset, and Sheila had bought that for me as a, a belated birthday present while well, she booked it in March which is my birthday. But this was the only, the first time we could get away. So we drove down and Somerset is famous for its apples and its cider. And of course, Glastonbury was the historical Isle of Avalon. And so there are lots and lots of orchards there. And we went to a place called the Chalice Well Garden. There's lots of interesting things to say about Glastonbury. It's been a site of pilgrimage for many years, both for Christians and pagans in fact. Lots of fairy stories like Gwynap Neath who lives under the Tor. The Tor is the great hill that stands very visible from the flatlands. The lands around Glastonbury, the Somerset levels, would flood and before they were drained by the monks I think in the medieval period, Glastonbury was an island. It stands on two sort of hills. There's the Tor Hill and then there's Wirial Hill or Wirral Hill. So the two mega-myths, the main myths of Glastonbury are a Christian one, that Joseph of Arimathea, if you remember, was the man who donated the tomb as a follower of Jesus Christ, and he, apparently after Christ's death, although some versions have, have it that he was a trader after tin, and that he came to the British Isles with Jesus as a young boy, and there's no evidence for this at all, of course, but, um, Joseph um, is said to have come with the Holy Grail. I'm just going to close that window. Yes, yeah, so like I was saying, the myth was that, uh, that's better, uh, that Joseph came and planted his staff on Wirial Hill, and that uh, this was the origin of the Glastonbury thorn. Now, the Glastonbury thorn is a thorn, a thorn tree, that blossoms at Christmas, so it's the, the Holy Thorn. And when they analysed the DNA of the Glastonbury thorn, they found that it was um, actually, actually was from Palestine. 
was most related to the thorn trees from Palestine. I believe that's true. Uh, anyway, somebody in latter years cut down the thorn tree in on Weary All Hill. It wasn't the original, uh, but there is one still in the churchyard off the high street. So that's the Christian myth about Glastonbury. And the, uh, the other one is related to King Arthur. So a um, in Welsh, Glastonbury was known before the English came as Uniswydrin, the, the glass island. I don't know if you know the story of Merlin. Merlin was apparently imprisoned in a glass place, but that was supposed to be in Brittany. I digress. So King Arthur, when he died, was brought by boat to the Isle of Avalon and was buried there. And then later on, the monks of Glastonbury Abbey, which is now pulled down since the time of Henry VIII, the ruins are still there, um, said they made a great deal of money out of uh, a pilgrimage spot as the grave of King Arthur and his queen Guinevere. And I believe that they said that when they dug the sword up, this is a long, the sword, when they dug the grave up, this is a long time ago, they found the bones of a giant and a sword, so they claimed that that was Arthur's grave. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. I kind of like to believe it. So anyway, Glastonbury's become a place of, place of pilgrimage. Another uh, interesting thing about it is there's the tor, this very big hill with a tower on it that you can see from miles away over the flatlands. And at the foot of the tor, there is a, a well, a, a spring, a white spring. And it's the white spring because it has the mineral calcium in it. And just over, literally 15 yards away, is the red spring. Now the red spring runs red because it's full of iron. So you have these two springs, the red and the white, rising together. And um, you can visit both of them now. And you can take the And I did, of course, drink the water. Um, some of my aches and pains have gone, but I don't know if I can claim that the water did that. Anyway, um, we visited. And the upshot of this story is that we sat in the Chalicewell Gardens, which is where the Red Spring it's fenced off now, and it's a beautiful place. It's owned by what well, was set up by a guy called Tudor Pole. Uh, and if you know anything about the Swords of 10,000 Men, which was a post-punk song in the late 70s, early 80s, that was one of his family, the very famous family. They claim to have found the Holy Grail there, not in the Chalicewell Gardens, but, but somewhere round about there. And that Holy Grail is, in, is one of the Holy Grails which uh, is in the British Museum. Anyway, people believed it was the Holy Grail. So it's been a place where people have gone for a long time. And this week, Sheila and I went, but we stayed. Um, we didn't stay anywhere too fancy. Um, but it was nice. It was really, really nice. And I never is friendly there if they're a bit hippie. They're, they, um, <laughs> I say, oh, I could live here. And she says, no, you couldn't. You get sick of doing nothing. But I would do something anyway, anyway. In the Chalicewell Garden, they have apple trees, the Isle of Avalon, the Isle of Apples. The Welsh for apple is Avall, yeah? So Avalon, the place of apples. And um, they, were, they had so many apples they were giving away, so I ate some and brought the pips back. And I've propagated these pips. They haven't grown yet. I put them in, in some compost and have watered them, and they're in our kitchen. And I'm hoping that we can take some of the holy apple trees of Avalon and grow them uh, up here in the cold north near the uh, River Petteril. There we are. So that's where I've been. Oh yeah, and no, we had a good trip back. I lost a few things. I'm, I'm a bit forgetful. I lost my pen knife, which was very useful because it had scissors on it and a, two kinds of screwdriver. I was always using it. I got it as a, in an offer um, in, a, in a camping shop and uh, I found it very useful anyway. Left that somewhere. Tripod of my camera I left at the the hill fort at Cannock Chase. And um, I left my AirPods somewhere. It says I left them in Glastonbury, but nobody can find them. Anyway, so I lost three things, but I gained a lovely week. So when we were coming back from Glastonbury, we drove across country past Bath uh, some, from Somerset, right up into Gloucestershire. And we stayed near Stowe in the Wold in a, in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in an old barn it was, in the middle of nowhere, run by a, an Englishman who was a Quaker and a, an, a woman from California, although she'd been in the, U, in the UK for a long time. She still walked about barefoot, even though it was freezing cold. Um, 
that was good. That was a lovely place. I'd recommend that. Uh, we stopped at Sirencester for lunch. And we went. To, the reason we went there was to see the Rollwright Stones, which are a very famous set of standing stones in Oxfordshire, which I'd never been to before. So you see, I, I mentioned the, the counties. I'm very interested in counties. I think you should know which county you're in. So we, we started off coming back in Somerset, and we drove through Somerset to Gloucestershire, across from Gloucestershire. That night we went to a pub called the Wickham Arms for, for a meal in a little village, which is actually in Warwickshire, and we drove through Warwickshire up to Staffordshire to Cannock Chase. And the reason I wanted to go to Cannock Chase was it is a zone of high strangeness. You probably know I'm interested in these things. And there have been sightings of werewolves, would you believe? It's, it's actually, given it's really close to Birmingham, it's a big area, a big wild area. And um, UFOs and uh, black, black, huge black cats and all sorts of stuff. Didn't see any. Uh, it was a bit rainy, so we went out and there's a big, big hill fort that used to belong to the Kornoi tribe, who were a tribe in the North Midlands. A big, big hill fort, grown over with ferns now. And we met a guy there who recommended, he said, well, I tell you what, if you go off the path, sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? If you go off the path and you go down a steep, cobbly path, quite steep, the other thing was, I was amazed how many river pebbles there were there, and lots of quartz, lots of gleaming quartz, and then lots of mushrooms, big, spotted, you know, like the, the, the very picturesque kind, the uh, red and white fly agarics. There were loads of other kinds as well. It's been a very mushroomy week, I think because of the damp. And it's still, it's not too cold, it's not frozen. So anyway, and he said, you get to this area of big old trees and um, don't go too far. He says, it's like Narnia, he said. He said, ah, he used to play there as a kid. He said, but don't go too far because you get lost. So anyway, Sheila and I went down here and I spent some time videoing falling leaves and photographing Fly Garrick. I didn't see a werewolf, I didn't see a UFO, and I didn't see any kind of cryptid beast, which was a, sort of a pity, although I was standing in this <laughs> very lonely wood thinking, hmm, I wonder what I'd do if a big panther came past now, or, or even a werewolf. I think I would have been slightly uncomfortable, but luckily that didn't happen. And the only mishap we had was I left my camera tripod because it was starting to pour down as we got back in the car. And I packed the cameras away and everything, and the camera, I've only got one camera. Well, no, I got a, 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 a GoPro and my Sony. And then um, I left a, a 6400, if you're interested, Alpha 6400, lovely camera. And um, I sell it now, I won't sell it to you, but I'm sure I could put a link on that you could buy it through. Um, and left the tripod, and we drove off through the rain, and we arrived in Cheshire. And we stayed in a tiny, tiny house, actually called a tiny house. It was an Airbnb, and it was somebody's garage, basically. And through some fantastic design process, they managed to get two bedrooms, a shower room, and a small living room out of it. It was beautifully designed, beautifully neat. And then we went to Alderley Edge. Now, Alderley Edge is a big sandstone outcropping. Now, I don't know if you know Alan Garner's books, The Weird Stone of Brising Amen and The Moon of Gomrath. Well, they came out in the 60s when I was a kid, when I was a small boy, and I devoured them, and I loved them. There's a story of some mysterious and magical goings-on on Old Early Edge with elves and dwarves and things. And they, they touch into the local folklore because the story is there's a wizard on Old Early Edge, and he um, offered to buy this farmer's white mare. And the, the farmer was making his way to sell the mare at Macclesfield, and they... He wouldn't sell it to the wizard because he thought he'd get a better price. But the wizard said, well, I'll see you when you get back because you're not going to sell it at the, at the market. And the funny thing was, although lots of people complimented him on his white mare at Macclesfield Market, nobody put in an offer. So dejected, he came back. And there was the wizard. And the wizard offered to buy the mare. And it turned out it was because King Arthur and his knights, see how he keeps cropping up? are in the caverns. It's full of caverns, mine workings. Going back to the Bronze Age, they mined there, but there's lots of caverns there. And in one of these caverns, King Arthur and his knights are, and one of the knights is uh, White Mare. They're all asleep, was missing. And so it knocked on the ground and a door opened and they went in and the farmer went in and the wizard said, in payment, there's the treasure room, take what you can, take what you want. 
of the treasure, and that's your payment. Uh, and off it went. Oh, never mind. So it's quite um, reassuring, the sound of the rain, anyway. So there we are, that's the story. And I didn't meet the wizard, I didn't meet any elves. I didn't even get to find the wizard's well. There's a well there that says, by the will of the wizard doth this water fall. And I was looking out for it, but it wasn't very well signed and I didn't have a map, which is my own fault. And then we came home, but it was a lovely trip. It took us a week. I, uh, uh, we went to the tea room called The Wizard. There was a pub there which is shut and the tea room. And I think they are running it down to turn it into houses because it's quite an expensive area. You're only 12 miles on Manchester. And so it probably you get a lot more money selling the pub building because there was a huge queue of people there at the tea room. So I'm sure they could have made a living, but you make more money out of the houses, which is a great shame to have houses encroaching on that magical wild place. That neatly takes us up to uh, custom of the week, which is from um, Steve Roud's book, The English Year. Great book. So when we look at October, we see a few customers at the beginning of October. Um, my eyes drawn to the Nottingham Goose Fair. You'll know Nottingham, of course, because of its connection with Robin Hood. And of course, there's a great pub there called, it's, they say it's a bit touristy, the Old Trip to Jerusalem. And it's said to be the oldest pub in England, although I think I was in Sirencester and they claimed they had the oldest pub in England as well, so it's hard to know. But Ye Olde Trip to Jerusalem is certainly one of them, and it's carved out of sandstone. Again, lots of sandstone. And um, it, lots of caves in Nottingham as well. So worth a, worth a visit, but it has a goose fair. You remember the crab fair at Egremont last time? So... Steve Roud says that various fairs up and down the country were famed for particular wares reflected in their names, and several were known for the numbers of geese sold, usually because these were held around Michaelmas, which is what we've just had, the traditional type of goose eating in England. Many goose fairs have faded from memory, but two that are still going strong as pleasure fairs, uh, as pleasure fairs, I used to say, you just have a good time there, there's Ferris wheels and people selling candy floss and cheap packets of underpants and um, batteries and things like that. Uh, anyway, not so many geese, though. Um, so this is, um, we're saying the two that exist are Nottingham and Tavistock in Devon, and both can claim considerable antiquity. A St. Matthew Fair at Nottingham was still extant when the town was awarded a second fair in 1284, so it might well be Anglo-Saxon in origin. It was called a goose fair at least as early as 1541. And in its heyday, tens of thousands of geese were sold at each year. The change of calendar in 1752 forced, forced the fair to move to 2nd of October, and continuing popularity brought much congestion to the city centre where it took place each year. By 1927, it was becoming intolerably cramped. A new municipal building around the market square made a move desirable, though there were loud protests against this. It is now held at the Forest Recreation Ground about a mile away, and is one of the biggest pleasure fairs in the country. The actual days on which the Goose Fair is held can vary from year to year. For some time it was regularised as the first Thursday in October and the following Friday and Saturday, but of late the fair has started on this Wednesday and run for four days. So it's a Michaelmas, Michaelmas fair. You all know about Michaelmas. It was one of the quarter days where servants got hired and fired. And the terms, I remember when I was at university, we had Michaelmas term, and that was, this was this one. So, um, of course, I was at university in Welsh, so it was uh, Tamar Sant Mihangel, um, who's Michael, St. Michael. So, there we go, the goose fair. And they don't sell many geese these days. And I think we were talking about how geese used to be eaten at Michaelmas. Michaelmas is a big time. And we were walking out, as we do, and Sheila was eating some blackberries. So I ate one or two. And I said to her, you shouldn't eat those, as we said this last time because after it's after Michaelmas. And after Michaelmas, the devil gets into the blackberries and, and, and you shouldn't eat them. Well, Sheila believes all sorts of things that I don't, but um, she didn't believe this one and she continued to eat them. So yeah, that was custom, not technically of the day, but of the, of the week at least. It was a good one, I thought. <clears throat> I've got a, a problem, an addiction to buying books, you know. And I, and I justify it to myself in all sorts of ways. I, well, this, this one would be useful for 
for this. Yes, I'm going to do that podcast. So this will be useful for that. So I spend a lot of my time in bookshops of all kinds. And I have done this last week. And I've, there's a book I've got, which I found by chance, uh, called While Wandering, A Walking Companion. And it's um, edited and introduced by Duncan Minsell, or Minshall, and uh, forward by Robert McFarlane. Robert McFarlane's a very well-known countryside writer. I like this one because we'd always said, and originally we said we'd walk the Camino de uh, Santiago de Compostela in Spain across the Pyrenees. Bizarrely, two of my Facebook friends are walking it. They don't know each other, and they're like a day apart on the Camino, you know, and I'm following their journey. Um, Sheila's now said we're, we're too old for that now. But I still want to do the... I want to do the next year, next summer, probably May, June, I want to do the Ridgeway Walk in southern England um, that goes past white horses carved in the downs and old stone circles through quaint villages. I sort of like the idea of going into the village pub, if they still exist, and having um, a ploughman's lunch with uh, a pint of local ale before setting off again. But probably they're all gastropubs now. And they serve you, you know, duck parfait with um, dillweed and orange à la juice or something like that. But, you know, the old ways have gone, aren't they? But uh, I think it'll still be good. But she, that's about 87 miles. It's, it, the, 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 the Camino in northern Spain is 400 miles long and it goes over the mountains, whereas the um, Ridgeway Walk just goes over some hills. It won't be nothing, but it'll be something. Nothing as bad as the Camino. Anyway, so I got this book. I got very into walking, and uh, there's some good advice, I think, from Charles Dickens. And he says in this book, it's, it's full of little excerpts, that you should, uh, to avoid um, blisters, what you should do is take lots of pairs of socks. As soon as you feel your sock starting, what you change it. You take lots of socks. And he said, uh, before you, maybe that no, was Wilkie Collins, I think. And um, he said, uh, you sponge your feet with vinegar and you won't have any blisters. So that's what I intend to do. Lots of socks and a bottle of vinegar. I won't need much else. Oh, boots, of course. So this book's actually full of really charming little excerpts by some great authors and some less well-known ones, uh, older ones and modern ones. But this is a little piece by Edward Thomas. Now, Edward Thomas was a... Um, from the Welsh borders, although he was English of Welsh descent, and he was a great English pastoral poet. He wrote about nature and the countryside and clearly loved the countryside. And he wrote some lovely poems. He wrote one of my favourite poems, Edelstrop. And I went within two miles of Edelstrop this week, for the first time in 30 years, and I nearly called um, just to see, but we were, we were late, so we didn't. So I may never go there again. Anyway, um, He's a, he's a great writer. Um, and this is called March Doubts, and this is from this book, While Wandering, A Walking Companion. So even if you're not wandering, and I hope you're not wandering in the middle of the night, we can um, just read this. All day the winter seemed to have gone. The horses' hoofs on the moist, firm road made a clear cuckoo as they rose and fell. And far off, for the first time in the year, a ploughboy who remembered spring and knew it would come again, shouted, Cuckoo! Cuckoo! A warm wind swept over the humid pastures and red sand pits on the hills, and they gleamed in a lightly muffled sun. Once more in the valleys, the ruddy farmhouses and farm buildings seemed new and fair again, and the oast house cones stood up as prophets of spring, since a south wind had turned all their white veins towards the north, and they felt the sea that lay an easy journey on such a day, beyond the third or fourth wooded ridge in the south. The leaves of goosegrass, mustard, vetch, dog's mercury, were high above the dead leaves on hedgebanks. Primrose and periwinkle were blossoming. Like flowers were the low ash-tree bowls where the axe had but lately cut off the tall rods, flower-like and sweet also the scent from the pits where labourers dipped the freshly peeled ash-poles in tar. In the elms, sitting crosswise on a bough, sang thrush and mistle-thrush, in the young corn, the larks, the robins in the thorns, and in all the meadows the guttural tones of the rooks were mellowed by love and the sun. 
Making deep brown ruts across the empty green fields came the long wagons piled high with faggots, the wheels rumbled, the harnesses jingled and shone, the horses panted and the carters cracked their whips. Soon would the first chiff-chaff sing in the young larches, at evening the calm, white, majestic young cloud should lie along the horizon in a clear and holy air, and climbing a steep hill at that hour, the walker should see a window, as it were, thrown open in the sky, and hear a music that should silence thoughts and even regret, as when, on the stage, a window is opened, and someone invisible is heard to sing a heavy-laden song below it. But as I walked, and the wind fell for the sunset, the path led me under high stony beaches. The air was cool and still and moist and waterish dark, and no bird sang. A wood pigeon spread out his barry tail as he ascended perpendicularly to a hidden place along the branches, and then there was no sound. The waterish half-light seemed to have lasted forever and have an eternity ahead. Through the trees a grassy, deeply rutted road wound downwards, and at the edge the ruts were broad and full of dark water. Still retaining some corruption of the light of the sky upon its surface, that shadowed water gave an immense melancholy to the wood. The reflections of the beaches across it were as the bars of a cage that imprisoned some child of light. It was but a few inches deep of rain, and yet, had it been a legendary pool, had a drowned woman's hair been stamped into the mud at its edge and left a green forehead exposed, it could not have stained and filled the air more tragically. The cold, the silence, the leaflessness found an expression in that clouded, shining surface among the ruts. Life and death seemed to contend there, and I recalled a dream which I had lately dreamed. I dreamed that someone had cut the cables that anchored me to such tranquility as had been mine and that I was drifted out upon an immensity of desolation and solitude. I was without hope, without even the energy of despair that might in time have given birth to hope. But in that desolation I found one business, to search for a poison that should kill slowly, painlessly, and unexpectedly. In that search I lost sight of what had persuaded me to it, yet when I at last succeeded, I took a draught and went out into the road and began to walk. A calm fell upon me, such as I had sometimes found in June thunderstorms on lonely hills, or in midnights when I stepped for a moment after long foolish labours to my door, and heard the nightingale singing out from the Pleiades that overhung the wood, and saw the flower-faced owl sitting on the gate. I walked on, not hastening with a too great desire, nor lingering with a too careful quietude. It was as yet early morning and the wheat sheaves stood on the gentle hills like yellow-haired women kneeling to the sun that was about to rise. Now and then I passed the corners of villages, and sometimes at windows and through doorways I saw the faces of men and women I had known and seemed to forget, and they smiled and were glad, but not more glad than I. Labouring in the fields also were men whose faces I was happy to recognise and see smiling with recognition and very sweet it was to go on thus, at ease, knowing neither trouble nor fatigue. I could have gone on, it seemed, for ever, and I wished to live so for ever, when suddenly I remembered the poison. Then of each one I met I begged a remedy. Some reminded me that formerly I had made a poor thing of life, and said that it was too late. Others supposed that I jested. A few asked me to stay with them and rest. The sky and the earth and the men and women drank of the poison that I had drunken, so that I could not endure the use of my eyes, and I entered a shop to buy some desperate remedy that should end all at once, when seeing behind the counter a long-dead friend in wedding attire, I awoke. Even so in the long wet ruts did the false hope of spring contend with the shadows, even so at last did it end, when the dead leaves upon the trees began to stir madly in the night wind with the sudden ghastly motion of burnt paper on the still fire when a draught stirs it in a silent room at night, and even the nearest trees seem to be but fantastic hollows in the misty air. And so that's uh, Edward Thomas, his book, from his book The Heart of England, published in 1906. For what it's worth, I think what that's about is that um, sometimes 
in our busy lives we forget the world around us and we think that our sorrow and desperation and loneliness are all there is in the world. And I think that's what he's saying in his dream where he'd arrived, but then he realised of the beauty and comfort in the natural world, certainly, with the birds and the trees, but also in the simple recognition of our fellows. People he knew, maybe didn't know very well, but even strangers who would smile and ask him to rest. So I think I think it's a, a story of hope, really. Don't give up. Was it Tolkien that said, Behind all darkness flies the sun and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the earth farewell. There you go. And with that, it's time for Legend of the Month. Although it's technically not of the month. I thought that as Nottingham had come up, when we talk about the Goose Fair, we'd stick with the Nottingham theme. And we'd uh, take, this is of course from Jennifer Westwood's book, Albion, A Guide to Legendary Britain. We'd have a look at Sherwood Forest. Lie then listen, gentlemen, that be of freeborn blood. I shall you tell of a good yeoman. His name was Robin Hood. So tales of Robin Hood have been in circulation at least since the High Middle Ages, probably in the form of ballads. I can know rhymes of Robin Hood and Randolph Earl of Chester, says Sloth in Pierce Plowman, which dates from 1380. The common tradition is that he was a captain of a band of outlaws who had their abode in the forest of Sherwood and lived by hunting the deer and robbing rich travellers, often to help the poor. Robin's lieutenant was a hulking fellow known as Little John, and among his company were Friar Tuck, William Scadlock, also known as Will Scarlet, and much the miller's son. With them in the greenwood lived Robin's wife or mistress, Maid Marian, whose reputed tomb is at Little Dunmo. Some said that Robin was born at Loxley in Nottinghamshire, and having wasted his inheritance was forced to live the life of an outlaw. When, in his old age, he felt infirmity coming upon him, he went to Kirkley's Priory in Yorkshire to seek the help of the prioress who was his aunt, but she betrayed him by opening a vein and allowing him to bleed to death. According to a tradition that first appears in the 18th century, when Robin realised what she had done, he summoned up his last strength and blew a great blast on his horn, which brought little John from the forest. Robin begged him to give him his bow, and fired an arrow through the window, saying that where it struck the ground, there should he be buried. A stone in Kirkley's Park is said to mark the spot. A series of ballads about Robin Hood, apparently from the later 14th century, was printed as a little jest of Robin Hood by winking to word in about 1495. In the little jest, he is associated not with Richard I, as commonly, certainly since Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, but with Edward II and it is said that in the household expenses of this king, a certain Robin Hood is mentioned as a valet or porter of the chamber between April and November 1324. Was there a real Robin Hood? Since the days of Grimm, it has often been said that he is a mythological personage, Robin of the Wood, connected with the green man image found in churches. His presence in the May Day revels up and down the country has been cited in support of this view, but Robin figured generally in plays and pageants in the 15th century. Sir John Paston kept a servant whose business it was to play St George and Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham, though how he could play both the last must remain a mystery. Robin seems to have been adopted into the May games only in the 15th century when he was identified as one of the pastoral pair Robin and Marion celebrated in French songs and poems of the 13th century and in a play by Adam de la Halle about 1280, which in the 14th century was annually performed at Angers at Whitsuntide. Maid Marion does not appear in the early Robin Hood tales, and it looks as if she came from France first in the Whitsuntide play, passing thence into the May Games, and finally in the 16th century into the legend. 
Probably a stock character of the main games, whether the French Robin or another, has taken on the identity of a historical outlaw to become the romantic hero of the Greenwood. Note that in Pierce Plowman, Robin's name is coupled with that of Ranulf, Earl of Chester, a real, not fictitious person. Robin's great popularity, attested by place and monument names, Robin Hood's Bay in Yorkshire from 1544, Robin Hood's Butts in no fewer than six counties, Cleveland, Dorset, Shropshire, Somerset, Staffordshire and North Yorkshire, need not reflect, as earlier scholars claimed, his origins as a solar hero, or else as the green man and the subject of a fertility cult, but simply the fact that he was an anti-authoritarian figure. Got one or two of those around at the moment, haven't we? It, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. Draw your own conclusion. In the earliest forms of his legend, he is an outlaw living in the woods of Barnsdale, in the West Riding of Yorkshire, a little south of Pontrefact. Only from the 16th century has the setting been mainly in Nottinghamshire. In the early tales, too, he is a yeoman, the best that ever bare bow, and not a nobleman as later. He is not a Saxon rebel fighting the Normans, as in Ivanhoe, but a common or garden bandit, robbing the rich to be sure, but that's common sense. And of giving the poor, we hear nothing. Just as later ages loved tales of highwaymen, Dick Turpin, and outlaws, Billy the Kid, so medieval audiences loved Robin, a man who, reprehensible as his actions might be, could be seen to cock a snook at the propertied classes. Although from the first he's said to have been devoted to the Virgin, only later had he grafted onto him high social ideals, perhaps to make him more suitable for children. But though a transformation had been worked on him, he was no cardboard figure, but a living hero still in people's imaginations into the 19th century. A correspondent of the Gentleman's Magazine in 1852 reported hearing some 20 years before from an honest and intelligent Yorkshireman of Robin's life in the Greenwood. The only thing Robin could not stun was a cold thaw. Obviously I feel the same, and I'm sure you do too. So now it's time for the bedtime story. I'm not doing the Midnight Folk because it wasn't really very popular, so I'm going to nip over to Wales and tell you a legend of the Morwyn of the Llynevan Vach, the maid of Llynevan Vach, and you'll hear all about it right now. The Maid of Llynevan High up in a hollow of the Black Mountains of South Wales is a lonely sheet of water called Llynevan Vach. In a farm not far from this lake, there lived in the olden time a widow, with an only son whose name was Gwyn. When this son grew up, he was often sent by his mother to look after the cattle grazing. The place where the sweetest food was to be found was near the lake, and it was thither that the mild-eyed beasts wandered whenever they had their will. One day, when Gwyn was walking along the banks of the mere, watching the kine cropping the short grass, he was astonished to see a lady standing in the clear, smooth water some distance from the land. She was the most beautiful creature that he had ever set eyes upon, and she was combing her long hair with a golden comb, the unruffled surface of the lake serving as her mirror. He stood on the brink gazing fixedly at the maiden, and straight away knew that he loved her. As he gazed, he unconsciously held out to her the barley bread and cheese which his mother had given him before he left home. The lady gradually glided towards him, but shook her head as he continued to hold out his hand and saying, Kras Tavara, need howl vanala, O thou of the crimped bread, it is not easy to catch me. She dived under the water and disappeared from his sight. He went home full of sorrow and told his mother of the beautiful vision which he had seen. As they pondered over the strange words used by the mysterious lady before she plunged out of sight, they came to the conclusion 
that there must have been some spell connected with the hard-baked bread, and the mother advised her son to take with him some toys or unbaked dough when he next went to the lake. Next morning, long before the sun appeared above the crest of the mountain, Gwyn was by the lake, with the dough in his hand, anxiously waiting for the Lady of the Lake to appear above the surface. The sun rose, scattering with his powerful beams the mists which veiled the high ridges around and mounted high in the heavens. Hour after hour the youth watched the waters, but hour after hour there was nothing to be seen except the ripples raised by the breeze and the sunbeams dancing upon them. By the late afternoon despair had crept over the watcher, and he was on the point of turning his footsteps homeward, when to his intense delight the lady again appeared above the sunlit ripples. She seemed even more beautiful than before, and Gwyn, forgetting in admiration of her fairness all that he had carefully prepared to say, could only hold out his hand, offering to her the dough. She refused the gift with a shake of her head as before, adding the words, Llaith davara, ti nivana. O thou of the moist bread, I will not have thee. Then she vanished under the water, but before she sank out of sight, she smiled upon the youth so sweetly and so graciously that his heart became fuller than ever of love. As he walked home slowly and sadly, the remembrance of her smile consoled him and awakened the hope that when next she appeared, she would not refuse his gift. He told his mother what had happened, and she advised him, inasmuch as the lady had refused both hard-baked and unbaked bread, to take with him next time bread that was half-baked. That night he did not sleep a wink, and long before the first twilight he was walking the margin of the lake with the half-baked bread in his hand, watching its smooth surface even more impatiently than the day before. The sun rose and the rain came, but the youth heeded nothing as he eagerly strained his gaze over the water. Morning wore to afternoon and afternoon to evening, but nothing met the eyes of the anxious watcher but the waves and the myriad dimples made in them by the rain. The shades of night began to fall, and Gwyn was about to depart in sore disappointment when casting a last farewell look over the lake, he beheld some cows walking on its surface. The sight of these beasts made him hope that they would be followed by the Lady of the Lake, and sure enough, before long, the maiden emerged from the water. She seemed lovelier than ever, and Gwyn was almost beside himself with joy at her appearance. His rapture increased when he saw that she was gradually approaching the land, and he rushed into the water to meet her, holding out the half-baked bread in his hand. She, smiling, took his gift, and allowed him to lead her to dry land. Her beauty dazzled him, and for some time he could do nothing but gaze upon her, and as he gazed upon her he saw that the sandal of her right foot was tied in a peculiar manner. She smiled so graciously upon him that he at last recovered his speech and said, Lady, I love you more than all the world besides, and want you to be my wife. She would not consent at first. He pleaded, however, so earnestly that she at last promised to be his bride, but only on the following condition. I will wed you, she said, and I will live with you until I receive from you three blows without a cause, three ergid diachos. When you strike me the third causeless blow, I will leave you forever. He was protesting that he would rather cut off his hand than employ it in such a way when she suddenly darted from him and dived into the lake. His grief and disappointment was so sore that he determined to put an end to his life by casting himself headlong into the deepest water of the lake. He rushed to the top of a great rock overhanging the water and was on the point of jumping in when he heard a loud voice saying, Forbear, rash youth, and come hither. He turned and beheld on the shore of the lake some distance from the rock 
a hoary-headed old man of majestic mien, accompanied by two maidens. He descended from the rock in fear and trembling, and the old man addressed him in comforting accents. Mortal, thou wishest to wed one of these my daughters. I will consent to the union, if thou wilt point out to me the one thou lovest. Gwyn gazed upon the two maidens, but they were so exactly similar in stature, apparel and beauty, that he could not see the slightest difference between them. They were such perfect counterparts of each other that it seemed quite impossible to say which of them had promised to be his bride, and the thought that if perchance he fixed upon the wrong one all would be forever lost nearly drove him to distraction. He was almost giving up the task in despair when one of the two maidens very quietly thrust her foot slightly forward. The motion, simple as it was, did not escape the attention of the youth, and looking down he saw the peculiar shoe-tie which he had observed on the sandal of the maiden who had accepted his half-baked bread. He went forward and boldly took her of the hand. Thou hast chosen rightly, said the old man, be to her a kind and loving husband, and I will give her as a dowry as many sheep, cattle, goats, swine and horses as she can count of each without drawing in her breath. But remember, if thou strikest her three causeless blows, she shall return to me. Gwyn was overjoyed and again protested that he would rather lop off all his limbs and do such a thing. The old man smiled and turning to his daughter desired her to count the number of sheep she wished to have. She began to count by fives. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. As many times as she could until her breath was exhausted. In an instant, as many sheep as she had counted emerged from the water. Then the father asked her to count the cattle she desired. One, two, three, four, five. In dwy tair petair pimp, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, she went on counting until she had to draw in her breath again. Without delay, black cattle to the number she had been able to reach came, lowing out the mere. In the same way she counted the goats, swine, and horses she wanted, and the full tail of each kind ranged themselves alongside the sheep and cattle. Then the old man, and his other daughter vanished. The Lady of the Lake and Gwyn were married amid great rejoicing, and took up their home at a farm named Eskairlaithdi, where they lived for many years. They were as happy as happy can be. Everything prospered with them, and three sons were born to them. When the eldest boy was seven years old, there was a wedding some distance away, to which Nelverch, for that was the name the Lady of the Lake gave herself, and her husband was specially invited. When the day came, two started and were walking through a field in which some of their horses were grazing. When Nelverch said that the distance was too great for her to walk, and that she would rather not go, We must go, said her husband, and if you do not like to walk, you can ride one of these horses. Do you catch one of them, while I go back to the house for the saddle and bridle? I will, she said. At the same time bring my gloves, I have forgotten them. They are on the table. He went back to the house, and when he returned with the saddle and bridle and gloves, he found, to his surprise, that she had not stirred from the spot where he had left her. Pointing to the horses, he playfully flicked her with the gloves and said, Care, care, go, go. This is the first causeless blow, she said with a sigh and reminded him of the conditions upon which she had married him, a condition which he had almost forgotten. Many years after, they were both at a christening. When all the guests were full of mirth and hilarity, Nelverch suddenly burst into tears and sobbed piteously. Gwyn tapped her on the shoulder and asked her why she wept. I weep, she said, because this poor innocent babe is so weak and frail that it will have no joy in this world. Pain and suffering will fill all the days of its brief stay on earth, and in the agony of torture will it depart this life. And husband, thou hast struck me the second causeless blow.
After this, Gwyn was on his guard day and night not to do anything which could be regarded as a breach of their marriage covenant. He was so happy in the love of Nelverch and his children that he knew his heart would break if through some accident he gave the last and only blow which would take his dear wife from him. Sometime after, the babe whose christening they had attended, after a short life of pain and suffering, died in agony, as Nelverch had foretold. Gwyn and the Lady of the Lake went to the funeral, and in the midst of the mourning and grief, Nelverch laughed merrily, causing all to stare at her in astonishment. Her husband was so shocked at her high spirits on so sad an occasion that he touched her, saying, Hush, wife, why dost thou laugh? I laugh, she replied, because the poor babe is at last happy and free from pain and suffering. Then, rising, she said, the last blow has been struck. Farewell. She started off immediately towards Escarlethdi, and when she arrived home, she called her cattle and other stock together, each by name. The cattle she called thus Mi Ulvrech, Moilvrech, Mi Olvrech, Gwynvrech, Petar Kai Tonvrech, Erhen Winnebwen, Arlas Geigen, Gedder Taru Gwyn, Olisa Brennin, Arlodi Bach, Seed Arabach, Dereditha, and Yach Adra. Brindled cow, bold, freckled, spotted cow, white speckled, ye four-field sward, mottled, the old white-faced, and the grey geigen, with the white bull from the court of the king, and thou, little black calf, suspended on the hook, come thou also, whole again, home. They all immediately obeyed the summons of their mistress. The little black calf, although it had been killed, came to life again and descending from the hook, walked off with the rest of the cattle, sheep, goats, swine, and horses, at the command of the lady of the lake. It was the spring of the year, and there were four oxen ploughing in one of the fields. To these she cried, A pedwar adion glass, seed are a mass, delchwitha, and yach adre, ye four grey oxen that are on the field, come you also, Whole dwell home. Away went the whole of the livestock with the lady across the mountain to the lake from whence they had come, and disappeared beneath its waters. The only trace they left was the furrow made by the plough which the oxen drew after them into the lake. This remains to this day. Gwyn's heart was broken. He followed his wife to the lake, crushed in woe, and put an end to his misery by plunging into the depths of the cold water. The three sons, distracted with grief, almost followed their father's example, and spent most of their days wandering about the lake in hope of seeing their lost mother once more. Their love was at last rewarded, for one day Nelverch appeared suddenly to them. She told them, that their mission on earth was to relieve the pain and misery of mankind. She took them to a place which is still called Pantmethagon, the physician's hollow, where she showed them the virtues of the plants and herbs which grew there and taught them the art of healing. Profiting by their mother's instruction, they became the most skillful physicians in the land. Priest Grieg, lord of Llandavri and Dinevor castles, gave them rank, lands and privileges at Mudvai for their maintenance in the practice of their art and for the healing and benefit of those who should seek their help. The fame of the physicians of Mudvai was established over the whole of Wales and continued for centuries among their descendants. And now we're going to finish off, really, with um, another story from another book which I collected. I've had this a long time. Behold This Dreamer by Walter Delamere. I've done a few excerpts from this. This is him talking about sleep. Sleep. But life goes on, leaks away, melts, attenuates itself ever more rapidly. And each night, at the habitual or unusual hour, 
a whispered summons from the nether regions of consciousness, or a glance at the clock, or a yawn, or mere ennui, reminds us that yet another day is done. The day gan failen, and the der knicht that reveth beasts from her busyness, bereft me my book for lack of licht, and to my bed I gan for me to dress, fulfilled of thought and busy heaviness, for both I had a thing which that I nolder, and ache I ne had a the thing that I wolder. So wrote Chaucer, and his dilemma is not unknown to most of us. Sharing these lines, we peer straight into the 14th century at this solitary and most lovable poet, retiring to rest, seeking his couch, off to Bedfordshire, climbing his dusky staircase bound for the land of Nod. Whether the divinity we no longer adulate be named Somnus, brother of death and son of night, or Morpheus or Hypnos, and the absence of any goddess of sleep is curious, as soon as sleep wins within call, then the waking self, and how define it, now quiet as a swan, as dewfall, as the smile on a gentle face may slip like some exquisite shallop at twilight into the deep waters. And the active, attentive, responsible, eager, talkative creature of daytime, the paterfamilias and ratepayer, has departed has become mute, defenceless, presumably irresponsible, is inscrutably engaged. There are faces which, when they are at rest, continue to wear a faint mask of sleep. Some appear to be perpetually haunted by dreams of the day or night beneath the surface of consciousness, as may those of very young children. Others are almost as serene as when sleep has them in its keeping. But whether the contrast be little or extreme, sleep brings to all a like immobility and an innate reverence, even apprehension perhaps, of this so usual miracle almost forbids one watching too closely any fellow creature in armchair or railway carriage thus lost to the world and actuality. And whither has the sleeper gone? Without perhaps any conscious volition, merely the prey of passive surrender. Why all this sleep? Seven, eight, nine, ten hours, perhaps, with a living to make, work to be done, thoughts to be thought, obligations to keep, a soul to save, friends to refrain from losing, pleasure to seek, and that prodigious host of activities known as life. Even if so odd a humiliation is nature's unavoidable device for ensuring the continuance of life, how wasteful a method it appears to be, no less afflicting to the rational victim than the fact, hardly to our own convenience, we consume in food and drink far more than is actually required by the body. Even if the body must rest, and but a few moments day rest will suffice to restore a runner or oarsman at the point of expiring from his effort, why the mind, and why indeed the soul, the spirit, and again, what description can we give of the brief and blissful journey from the one state to the other? Night after night the process is repeated. Morning after morning it is reversed. What happens then? Despite the fact that we may have submitted ourselves to this experience ten or twenty thousand times, it is extremely difficult to observe it clearly and closely and to record in memory the content of the few moments immediately preceding the onset of sleep. Here the novice must be his own expert. He can only patiently check any other evidence available. A change in the position of an eye is involved. That is easily noticeable. The body has, as it were, melted out of ken. Consciousness is confined in its attic. A narrowing and intensification of the inward darkness may follow, or a curious fluttering of shadows against the neutral background, and very occasionally one is aware of the sensation as of a tiny falling shutter, and then, whether a minute by the clock or several hours have intervened, one is awake again. I have tried repeatedly to watch and examine the process, the fugitive imagery, the protean psychic material, that fluttering, wavering, 
patterning of retinal luminosity, the abrupt emergence of some mental phantasm having no perceptible relation whatever to its surroundings, and now and then the sound of many voices or a sudden shout. But it is inordinately difficult to follow it. And the mere act of watching indeed may involve an unusual procedure, resembling that of a cat entering a room and suddenly aware that a human occupant has his eyes on her. The positive instant of transition is usually imperceptible. Attention may at once defer it, or the curtain may descend in the little theatre of the mind as swiftly as the shadow of a cloud over a sunlit town. We were here, then, and now has evaporated. If the hours that follow leave no dreams behind them, the time so occupied seems to have been reduced to a cipher, and the return to the body may be as instantaneous as was its surrender. Even after a lengthy period, many days, of what appears to have been complete unconsciousness, a sentence may be instantly finished which the onset of sleep left broken in half. On awakening, we usually find ourselves seated once more on the apex of the Mount of Memory, surveying a world utterly indifferent to our prolonged absence, and every tiniest wheel of the great contraption is busily revolving again. Nor has the man of science, in spite of the knowledge and instruments he can bring to his inquiry, yet been able to explore and to explain the mystery of sleep. He can do little more than observe and record its perceptible effects on the body. In general, says Madame Marie de Manassienne in her treatise on sleep, we pay no attention to its phenomena and do not even include it among the questions deserving of serious study. The phenomena of normal sleep in this 19th century are still so little studied that we do not yet know how to modify the conditions of sleep in accordance with different diseases or the exhaustion of the various organs or the changes in life. That was part of On Sleep by Walter de la Mer from his book Behold the Streamer which is a great anthology of different things, thoughts and snippets and trimmings and all sorts of stuff. The kind of book which I like particularly for this little program. So I'm hoping you're quite dozy now. But if you're not, feel free to do one or two things. But you don't have to do anything, really. You could play this again. Or you could wait and hear another episode. In any case, I wish you a very deep and restful sleep. And if it seems hard to find that sleep, I wish that your troubles and worries be far away. And so with that wish, I'll leave you to sleep. Good night. <laughs>